the old comedian George Carlin used to be strictly in favor of the separation of church and state. The way he saw it, those two institutions mess everything up enough on their own, and to bring those two things together would be the death of us all. Here's what George Carlin says about church and state. The real reason we can't put the Ten Commandments up in a courthouse is because you can't post, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, and thou shalt not lie in a building full of lawyers, judges, and politicians. Creates a hostile working environment. In our journey through Philippians, we have reached a passage today that alters our attitudes so we don't see church and state. We see church as state. The passage today transforms our perspective so we don't think about religion and politics. We think about religion as politics. Philippians 3.20 is certainly more than a motto. Before we read the text, let's, uh, let's, let's define politics, okay? I think that that's probably a good place to start. And if you want to go ahead and raise a couple of eyebrows and kind of roll your eyes a little bit, now's the time to do that, okay? Look at your neighbor kind of sideways, not fully, you know, eye to eye, but just acknowledge, okay, this is weird. But let's define politics first. Politics, just the word itself, okay? Just, just the definition, just the concept having an organized system or a structure that governs the citizens of a distinct community or state. Okay, that's just, that's easy. That's just politics, right? Politics just means we have a leader we follow. We have a set of laws or rules for taking care of people, for uniting citizens, for helping citizens live together in peace and with a common purpose. And you have traditions and customs and ways of behaving together that reinforce that unity and purpose. So at its fundamental, most basic core, that's what politics is. It's just rules and beliefs and behaviors that govern a people. So, of course, you've got local, state, and national politics, but you've also got politics at work, and you've got family politics, and you've got neighborhood politics. You understand what I'm saying. So, when Paul wrote Philippians, he used very specific and very obvious political language, and and he did this on purpose. Remember the setting here. The city of Philippi is a Roman colony. Most of the citizens of Philippi were retired military families who'd been given this land as kind of a retirement package for their work with the Roman army. And so Philippi is 550 miles east of Rome. It's across the sea. It's it's in a different world, almost in a million different ways. But because they're a Roman colony, they're all citizens of Rome. Their official citizenship is in Rome. They live in Macedonia, right? But their citizenship is in Rome. And so they, they dress like Romans. They build their buildings like Romans. They speak Latin like Romans do. They worship the emperor like Romans do. They lived in Philippi, but they didn't consider themselves Philippians. They were Roman. 
When Paul and Silas visited Philippi in Acts 16, remember they drive that evil spirit out of that slave girl and the girl's owners are upset and they drag Paul and Silas before the city magistrates and they say, verse 21, these men are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. What do you mean us Romans? You live in Philippi. Yes, we live in Philippi, but we are citizens of Rome. Philippi is a Roman outpost. It's an island of one culture in the middle of another culture. It's a city of people promoting and practicing customs and traditions and even a language that is foreign to their culture, but they do that in order to keep themselves tied to their roots their identity, to keep them connected to who they really are. We lived in Memphis, Tennessee for about a year in 1998, and the whole time we were there, I did not get a Texas driver's license. I did not get, I'm sorry, I did not get a Tennessee driver's license. I did not get Tennessee license plates for my car. We flew the Texas flag on our front porch, and I flew one inside my office. Uh, We listened to Stevie Ray Vaughan and ZZ Top, and I wore Texas Rangers sweatshirts, and I wouldn't let anybody put coleslaw on top of my barbecue sandwich. (laughs) I was thinking and acting like a Texan, and I was talking and behaving like a Texan. We live in Tennessee, but my citizenship is in Texas, okay? That's, that's kind of what's going on here, right? Paul writes to these Christians, and he says, you don't belong to Philippi or to Rome. Your citizenship is in heaven. Read with me, Philippians 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 17. This picks up where we left off last Sunday. Join with others. In following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. For as I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven." And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, that's how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Our citizenship is in heaven. Now, this word for citizenship here in verse 20, sometimes it's translated commonwealth, but the word is polituma, poly, right? That's the root word, polis. Polis just means a city or a state or a place where people live together. Think metropolis, right? That's the word, polis or poly, right? Politeia is a citizen of the polis or a citizen of the Roman Empire, which is kind of our context here. A polytarch is a Roman government official, right? And here in verse 20, polituma just means citizenship, the subjects of a particular city or state. According to Bauer's Greek lexicon, here's here's the definition of this word in verse 20, a colony of foreigners whose conduct is shaped by their kingdom. 
This goes perfectly well with what Paul wrote earlier in this same letter. Flip back a page to chapter 1, verse 27, when Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The word conduct here in the Greek is politusthe. That means to behave as a citizen, to conduct oneself because of your citizenship. We see the same kinds of words in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2 says, You are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household. Soon politi, that's the word there. It means citizens together or citizens in partnership. This is fellow citizens. These are all the same words that have poly in them. They're, they're political words. These are the words from which we get our English words like politics or political or politician or polyester. Just kidding. Just making sure you're still with me. Stay with me, okay? But Paul's using these political words on purpose to drive home a very important point that God's church needs to hear in AD 62. And a very important point that God's church needs to hear in AD 2022. Our citizenship is in heaven. Here on earth, we are a colony of heavenly citizens. God's church is an outpost. God's church is an island of one culture in the middle of another culture. We are people who believe and practice customs and traditions and even a language that is foreign to the world around us, but it connects us to our roots. It reminds us of our identity and who we are as citizens of heaven. This is more than a motto. God's church is a political body built on political ideals and loaded with political words and actions and phrases that have nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats or conservatives or liberals or the United States of America. Kingdom of God, that's a political phrase. Jesus is Lord, that's a political fact. And citizens of God's church are just being encouraged here to maintain their identity as a distinct political community. We are citizens of heaven. That's the truth. And it's more than a motto. Our citizenship in heaven sets us apart. That's the first thing it does. It sets us apart. In Acts 21, Paul is arrested at the temple the whole crowd is stirred up, it says. They seize him. Listen to what Paul's accused of. Verse 28, this is the man who teaches all people everywhere against our people and our laws in this place. Whatever Paul is preaching, whatever he's doing, the, the people uh, regard it as being against them and against the laws and just against this place where we live. Whatever Paul's teaching, whatever he's preaching, the whole city was aroused, it says. And the people came running from all directions, seizing Paul, and they begin to riot, and they grab Paul, and they beat him, and they try to kill him. And then he finally gets a chance to defend his charges. In uh, chapter 23, the very first verse, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, my brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience. Duty, that word in the Greek is pepolatumai. There's that poly again. This is a political word. As citizens of God's kingdom, as, as a subject of the lordship of Jesus Christ, I have behaved properly is what Paul's saying. I've been a loyal citizen. 
Our citizenship sets us apart. Acts chapter 17, the Christians are arrested in Thessalonica. Jason and the other disciples are dragged before the city officials and listen to the charges. Here's what they're accused of. These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. To proclaim that Jesus is Lord means you're saying Caesar is not. You can only have one king, brothers and sisters. Amen? There's only one king. You can only serve one master. And that makes us different. To claim citizenship in heaven is to declare our allegiance first and foremost to God's kingdom, not the empire. And that sets us apart. Our Lord Jesus is standing in chains before the Roman governor in John 18. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Verse 37, you are a king then, Pilate said. Jesus answered, that's exactly right. You are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world. Our citizenship in heaven sets us apart, but our citizenship also, church, it's a reality. When Jesus came to this earth, he did not bring a new teaching. He did not bring a new ethic. Jesus didn't bring lofty ideals and theological concepts. What Jesus brings to us is a brand new reality. We live in and are part of the reality of the eternal power and reign of Jesus as king in the eternal kingdom of God. We know that God in Christ rules this world, not presidents or parties or governors or generals. Amen? So we are strangers and aliens in this world because we understand this and nobody else does. What makes the church, I'm talking about us, okay? What makes God's holy polis, what makes us so radical and different isn't that the church sometimes leans a little to the left on some issues and might lean a little to the right on other issues. That's not it. What makes God's commonwealth so radical and revolutionary is that we know Jesus is Lord and the world doesn't. We know what's really going on. That the kingdoms of this world are being defeated. The kingdoms of this world are ultimately being destroyed by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that's going to reign in power eternally forever. The only one. Even the very best of this world's kingdoms, they're just missed. Temporary. Fallen. Sinful. At best. The reality is, someday... The kingdoms of this world are going to become the kingdom of our Lord. Revelation 11 paints the picture so, uh, for us so vividly. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. Church, we've got to slow down sometimes. Sometimes we just got to slow down and look around and get a handle on what's really happening. We need to remember what's, what's really going on around us. We, we've got to take in the reality. 
And the truth is, it's hard to grasp the reality because there is so much unreality all around us, all the time, constantly. We've got 24-hour news. We've got 24-hour talk. We've got 24-hour internet. And we've got emails and campaigns and bumper stickers and debates. And we've got Facebook. And it's so hard. We can get so caught up in all that stuff. And we can start to believe, if we're not careful, that the politics of this kingdom are what's really important. Until we step back and look around with some heavenly perspective. The kingdom of God respects no geographical boundaries or national distinctions. Will talked about this at the table earlier. As citizens living under the rule of Christ, we have different laws and customs. We have different priorities and values. We, we have different ways to take care of people. We are subject to a different king. And so we rise high above and we go way beyond any, any kind of national thought or national pride or national agenda. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ levels all of us into an eternal and international kingdom of God. We're citizens of heaven. And that citizenship requires kingdom politics. All right, church, here's where we get into trouble. We get into trouble. We fall short of our calling. We, we fail to live up to our responsibility as citizens of heaven. When we equate national politics with the politics of the kingdom of God. When we view the earthly power systems and the worldly structures of threat and violence as helpful to the cause of Christ. Or something to be used. Or even compatible Go back to Philippians chapter 3, and let's, uh, let's look at our passage again. Philippians 3, verse 18, I've told you before, and I now say it again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. Now, remember the context here. Paul's talking about Christ. He's talking about knowing Christ, being found in Christ, imitating Christ, having the same mind, the same attitude as Christ, humility, sacrifice, and service. Remember, this is the context, giving up everything in order to serve other people with love. And the model here is the cross. Follow the cross. Imitate the cross. Obedient to death, even death on a cross, your attitude should be the same as that. So who are the enemies of the cross? What are these earthly things? Well, what is it that stands opposed to everything the cross itself represents? Well, there's a long list of things. Greed, lust, violence, selfishness, power, war, threat. That's the primetime lineup on our TV shows, you know? Those are the things that are on our billboards and on the sides of our buses. That, that, those are the things that drive our country's economy. Those are the values that sustain this country and, and shape this country's politics. And brothers and sisters, those things are not compatible with the kingdom of God. They're contrary. They're competing with it. 
And listen, hear, hear me on this. We are trying to change the world, right? That's our mission as citizens of heaven. We are trying to change the world. That's the job. But our problem is we generally try to impact the world on the world's terms instead of the kingdom of God's terms. That's where we get into trouble, trying to change the world with the world's ways instead of our king's ways. Pick a political issue, okay? Anything, like abortion and gay marriage. I tried to pick some nobody has an opinion about, okay? I mean, those are, those are two of the hot ones, right? And here's what Christians in this country, here's what we normally do. We try to decide what's the Christian position on abortion and gay marriage, okay? Once we decide what the Christian position is, then we try to use everything in our power to coerce or to persuade the government to set up new laws to support or enforce the Christian point of view. And because we live in a democracy for now, and we're fortunate to do that, just like every other lobby group, Christians have the power to ask or persuade government to support our point of view. And when we do that, what we're saying is that Christian ethics just makes sense to all intelligent, rational, thinking Americans, whether they've got any faith in Jesus Christ or not. And church, that is simply not true. That's not true. The things that we uphold only make sense because of what we believe happened in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We could try, I guess, I guess we could try to say, yes, kingdom of God ethics do make sense even to people who don't confess Jesus as Lord. Christian ethics are just common sense. It's what's best for people. It's what works. It makes perfect sense if you think about it. We could try to do that, I guess, until you come across a text like the Sermon on the Mount. Anybody who reads the Sermon on the Mount knows immediately that doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. And that's what makes the church necessary. The teachings of Jesus and his example. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything Jesus says, everything Jesus does. That's what establishes the colony, the polis, us. Not because disciples of Christ are trying to be different, but because if we believe the teachings of Jesus and we live into the life of Jesus, we're going to be different. The world is the place where what makes sense to everybody is actually the opposite of what God is doing. Jesus was not crucified for saying and doing things that made sense to everybody. People are crucified for living and doing things that go against the culture. If Jesus had said, you know, it, it makes sense to turn the other cheek when somebody hits you because then you'll, uh, you'll make that person better. Or if Jesus said, you know, it makes sense to carry the backpack of the enemy soldier a second mile because then you'll understand more what you have in common and you'll see the goodness in each other. Our Lord Jesus never made those claims. Instead, he says very plainly, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give to people who ask, love your enemies. Why? Because God is like this. 
You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? See how he's talking about the politics of the world versus the politics of the kingdom. He's talking about the politics of pagans versus the politics of God's children. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect or be complete, therefore, as your heavenly Father is complete. Our God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. He makes his son to rise on the good and the bad. He gives his reign to the righteous and the unrighteous. Unless you live in Midland, I guess. I feel like we're sometimes on our own in that category. But our politics come out of these Christian claims. And it doesn't make sense to people outside of the colony. And guess what? It shouldn't. Because the church is the only polis formed by and around the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And as citizens of heaven... Our politics is not a strategy to get what we want. Our politics is just the only way to live now that we've seen in Jesus Christ what God wants. Brothers and sisters, I think the most interesting, creative, political solutions we Christians have to offer our troubled society are not new laws, not advice to Congress, and not increased funding for government programs. This world is not going to be changed by better laws or different judges or more efficient ways to wage war. The most creative and effective strategy we have to offer a broken and falling world is the church. We show the world a way of living that can never be achieved through force or government action. We help the world when we show it something it is not. The famous theologian Karl Barth said this, The church exists to set up in the world a new sign which is radically different from the world's own manner and which contradicts it in a way which is full of promise. Here's what that looks like. Our citizenship determines our conduct. 1 Peter chapter 2. It's a pretty good chance Peter was writing this about the same time Paul wrote Philippians. In chapter 2, the apostle writes, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. And so as the people of God, as this holy nation, how do we live as citizens of heaven, how do we conduct ourselves in the middle of this temporary, falling, and fading world? Verse 11, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake, to every authority instituted among people, whether to the king 
as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as servants of God. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. Fear God. Honor the king. Submit to the worldly governments. Submit to the worldly authorities. And we don't obey because the government has some kind of authority over this. It doesn't. It says right here, we're free from all that. But we submit for the sake of the Lord, it says. When we obey the laws, when we live as good citizens in this foreign land, people will see the holiness of God, and that leads to them giving praise to the Lord. And that does mean we obey all the laws of this land, right? Not just the ones you agree with right? It's not your job to determine if the speed limits are too low or if the allowable deductions are not high enough, okay? We, we obey all the laws. Our job is to submit with a smile for the sake of the Lord. And this good behavior, especially when it's so different from what the world's citizens are used to, it could lead to an opportunity to share with someone the grace of God. 1 Peter chapter 3 says, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. If citizens of heaven do choose to engage in the politics of America or any other earthly country, we approach it as subjects of the true King of Kings and the real Lord of Lords with gentleness and respect. I hear and I read too many nasty remarks and ugly insults, hateful stuff coming from Christians directed at politicians and their parties and their constituents. And brothers and sisters, we agree on this. There's no justification for that kind of language coming out of citizens of heaven. Amen, I'll say it. The Bible says our involvement with the worldly governments is in order to please God and to have a positive, godly impact on people. Gentleness and respect. Okay, last thing. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. We'll look at something we read a couple of weeks ago, but this is all the same letter, right? This, all, this is all the same thing. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault and a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. This world is hostile to Christians. Subjects of God's kingdom are ridiculed in the entertainment realm. We're neglected or misrepresented in the media, and we are completely shut out of the public education system. And as America becomes less Christian, and as the church, by God's grace, becomes more Christian, those feelings of being left out are only going to intensify. That's going to get worse. It's not going to get better. But I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. 
See, the Bible views the world and its systems and its structures as fallen and broken and sinful and in need of the redeeming work of our God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And as the facade of this Christian nation continues to fade away, it may be an advantage to us to see clearly for a change what this world's always been all along. These feelings that we have shouldn't drive us to attack society's structures so we can somehow restore the facade. And we don't retreat behind our church walls to keep the world out. As citizens of heaven, our purpose is to advance the kingdom, the real kingdom, the eternal kingdom of God. By living holy lives that compel the world to watch us. We do not destroy people who oppose the rule of God with sound bites and social media. We practice kingdom civics. Kingdom of God politics. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, Gentleness, kingdom of God civics, respect, forgiveness, relationship, empathy, humility, sacrifice, service, because our citizenship is in heaven. I was nine years old in the summer of 1975 when my dad packed up the blue Chevrolet Impala and drove the family up to Niagara Falls. Uh, we were five in our family at the time, and then we took my grandma, so that was six of us in this Impala, and we drove it. We drove to Niagara Falls. And I remember very clearly, after a long day of sightseeing in Ontario, I remember walking into this diner and ordering burgers and fries and going to sit down in a booth. And I mean, this is such a such a vivid, powerful memory to me. I remember everything. I can still see the, the black and white checkered tile on the floor. I can still kind of see the counter. I mean, this was such a powerful thing for me. We ordered the food. We sit down in a booth. And after like a minute and a half, this lady from the booth next to us leans over and she says, what part of Texas are you from? And we weren't wearing anything that said Texas. She hadn't seen our Texas license plates. We weren't talking about Texas. There was nothing going on that would have told her we were from Texas. So we asked her, how in the world did you know we were from Texas? And she said, I could tell immediately by the way you talk and the way you act that you're from Texas. Brothers and sisters, church, everywhere we go, everything we do, we ought to stick out as people who aren't from around here. We ought to stick out to everybody we come into contact with as somebody who lives somewhere else. Listen, the world needs our polis. The world needs our colony, our commonwealth of heavenly citizens. The only way the world is going to know that it needs redeeming, that it's broken and fallen and sinful, is if we live redeemed lives. The only way the world is going to know that it needs saving is if we point to the Savior by living saved lives. And it won't be because it makes sense. It'll be because it happens to be true. Stand with me, church. Let's pray together.
Father, today, as your congregation of disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ at Golf Course Road, today, God, in the name of Jesus, we promise we renounce the ways of the world. We renounce the ways of Satan. And we embrace the ways of our Lord Jesus Christ. We embrace his conduct, his way of living, his way of dying, God. We embrace that today. And we give you thanks, Father, for saving us and then for calling us to live with you and with each other in the eternal kingdom of God. Our citizenship is in heaven, Father. And would you please give to us this week the courage we need, the boldness we need. God, give us the faith that we need to live like we belong somewhere else. Like we know, God, what not everybody knows, that you are sovereign and you reign eternally over this world and over us with your love and your grace and your peace. May all of that belong to us and may we reflect that, God, as we leave this place today. In the name of Jesus Christ, our risen and coming King, we all say together, amen.